Welcome to Lawali Life, the podcast. I'm Alice Law, your host and founder of Lawali Life, which is my coaching practice I've set up to help stress professionals and entrepreneurs to decrease, manage, and get rid of stress whilst improving their professional and personal performance. I take a very holistic approach to stress management, and this podcast is based purely around stress and loss and is a mixture of conversations with leaders in their fields from top CEOs, neuroscientists, authors, and other coaches and spiritual thought leaders guiding you through how they overcame their personal stress and losses and how you can overcome yours. Today's guest is the wonderful Paul McGregor, who is a mental health advocate, mental health speaker and author of Man Up, Man Down. He's amazing at talking about the stigma around mental health, particularly with men. And it was a really candid, open, also sometimes amusing conversation. And I hope you enjoyed listening to him and changing the conversation around mental health and the fact that we all have it. So we have Paul McGregor here today. Thank you so much for joining, Paul. It's great to get you on the show. Paul is a men's mental health advocate, a mental health speaker, and an author around all things mental health. So it's so great to have you. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for having me. So how did you... I mean, I know a bit about your story, but for everyone listening, what was you know, the reason you now, this is your whole life, helping people with mental health, men's in particular, what was your story that brought you on to this? So mental health, mental illness was just not in my curriculum for the first 18 years of my life. It was just, you know, mental illness in particular was just something that would have never affected me or my family. It was very much, um, you know, it was, I, I was brought up and I was quite academic and your, your typical, as you would kind of say, everything on paper looks fine. And um, the story that I share is the story of my dad. My dad, when I was 18, he had a overnight change in behavior, dramatic change in behavior, where he went from the dad who was an engineer, um, part-time physiotherapy business, run, he ran from home, a psychology degree, read self-help books, meditated, run every single day. My dad, who just was happy, um, almost overnight, just completely changed and become very depressed. Um, it's hard to explain kind of looking back, but the way that I, the thing that I always remember is his eyes. His eyes were very distant and glazed over um, and he went to get help from the doctors got antidepressants um, a couple of days later went back got more antidepressants and then a couple of days later he attempted suicide so from the dad that we all knew to changing behaviors it was about seven days when he made a serious attempt on his life um, but he survived that attempt sort of came home denied that it was suicide blamed it on the medication which we kind of believed and even back then, my mindset was, Dad will snap out of this. Dad will be fine. Like, this is just a blip and everything will be okay. Um, but he got worse. He ended up sectioning himself into a local mental health unit, um, which, again, you know, this mental health unit was quite close to where we lived, but we didn't know it was there because it's kind of tucked away behind the hospital. And I now vividly remember my dad as well used to call it a loony bin. You know, it's a loony <laughs> bin. It's like, that's his conditioning around mental health. Um, I remember he said, yeah, that's where the loonies go. And my dad spent three months there. And it, it's the, ho- the worst place I've ever seen, if I'm honest. It's a horrible, horrible place. Um, and, you know, that was our first exposure to mental illness. My dad was there with, with depression and suicidal thoughts. But, you know, there's borderline personality disorder. There was schizophrenia, psychosis. Um, and he came out of the, the unit and seemed better. But, you know, again, looking back on that, he wasn't. He was just wearing that mask, pretending that everything was okay. And then, um, 
you know, he, he, he seemed better, but then he got worse and we got him back into the unit. He got him out of the unit and it was just completely banging your head against the wall for, for a good six months. And um, sadly, he, he took his life on the 4th of March 2009. And yeah, it's, it's a very hard thing to deal with when someone you love dies and someone you love takes their own life. And um, I didn't deal with it very well. <laughs> um, I dealt with it like most men would, you know, cry, get angry and then go clubbing, you know, six days after and drink and started a, a fashion business, an online fashion business, which was good, but it was just distract, 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 distract. Um, and yeah, and that's kind of where, where my journey started after that. So from that, like, you know, the distraction and that spiral and uh, doing fashion business and doing something so unrelated to what you do now, what was the turning point for you wanting to be a mental health advocate and speaker and you deciding that was the right thing to do? Yeah, so I kind of then went on a little bit of a path after about, say, two years of just pure distractions. Just <laughs> two years of just... And I say distractions, but... I talk a lot about it in my talks now. I was doing what my dad was doing. I was wearing this mask. I was showing all my mates, everyone, that I was okay. But um, I'd cry myself to sleep. I'd, like, you know, at home be struggling to deal with it. But on the outside, you know, everything seemed okay. And about two years after that, I found myself in a dark, dark place, just just really struggling with depression, anxiety, um, not seeing how I could move forward without my dad, like, you know, I just couldn't answer why. I didn't know why he did it. And I was, I had a lot of emotions around it. And I went to see a lady, a lady called Anne. Um, she's a holistic therapist. And I tried a counsellor, psychiatrist, etc. But Anne, I'm sure we can talk about it a lot more if we're going to go down that route. <laughs> but Anne, Anne was the only one that I call, I call it, she broke me. Like she was the first person to get me to open up, to talk about my dad. And then Anne kind of put me on this journey personally of like being able to deal with it, understand it, manage my emotions. Um... And then it was a good five years after that that I then started to talk openly about it. It started by just a blog post um, that, you know, people were commenting on it and emailing me and it was an amazing feeling. But then, you know, six months later, I did another one, another blog post, and then it become videos on social media, then public speaking. So people see it now, but it was really kind of a sort of eight-year journey of me trying to figure out myself first before kind of vocalising it yeah, to everyone. that's amazing. It's funny you say, like, The Mask, which is such a, a thing, isn't it? It's like that book Lewis Howes wrote called The Nine Masks of Masculinity, which I love. I think mm. anyone should read that because you read it and you literally notice at least two or three yeah, masks yeah. that every man you know is putting on, and it's so funny. Mm. But so for you, that mask, what do you think, you know, that the mask that men put on, without wanting to show vulnerability when they are going through such an enormous amount of pain. It can be a hindrance. So how do you see or get people to kind of take off that mask? I, I Yeah, it's, and Vic Lewis Howe talks, talks about it as well. The, the vulnerability, I believe we're conditioned to understand it's a weakness. Like if we become vulnerable, then we're weak. But now I see it complete opposite. You know, vulnerability is strength. Like I'm okay with being vulnerable. And um, I, I did this talk once and it sits with me. There was these guys, like big bouncer guys. Um, I did the talk to share my story and they come up to me afterwards and they're like, you've got some balls on you to do, <laughs> to, to do that. And they, then they start telling me their story. And um, I think we're slowly shifting that if people can kind of talk about how they're feeling, but almost own it in a way as well. And, you know, say it in a way that they're trying to help others and, 
um, and be okay with that vulnerability, I think it's very important. Um, but I still wear masks. I think we all wear masks, yeah. you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong in wearing that mask. But it's also knowing that we can take the mask off, we can be vulnerable, we can tell people how we're feeling, and then we can go back yeah. to it as well. I think there's a massive generational shift with that, particularly mm. with men. I mean, like I said to you earlier, my dad was depressed and he was of the generation where you literally shut up, don't tell anyone, get mm. on with it. And, you know, even therapy is ridiculous. So, so he thought coaching for me, it's like, what are you even doing? So I think the generational shift, how have you seen that in the work you're doing? Do you find that it's easier to talk to, like, your generation, our generation, than it is when you're talking to older people? Or how have you found that? Yeah, it's massive. And it's, it's so true. Mental health is so generational. Like my, my granddad, he's still alive. He's 94. He's stubborn as hell. Amazing. Um, but like my dad was an only child. So my dad was an only child. So this is my dad's dad. And, um, you know, my granddad went through war. My granddad's been through a lot. So his conditioning around mental health is very much like man up. Just, just get on with it. And he lost my dad in March and my nan in April. So he lost his, his only son, his only child and his wife of over 50 years in the space of 30 days. And I just remember vividly just waiting for my granddad to cry, <laughs> just waiting and waiting in both funerals, just nothing, like no emotion at all. Um, and I think my dad struggled with that. Like I always explain the story of just overnight my dad broke, but I know in my dad's mind, my dad was breaking for a long, 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 long time, just years and years and years of maybe having these suicidal thoughts or I kind of look back at it now and I believe my dad maybe had been struggling a little bit with OCD, but you know, Mm. we didn't, we didn't understand it back then. Um, so I believe that really hindered my dad. Like at that generation as a man, can he come and talk about how he's feeling? Like he's been brought up by my granddad who tells him to <laughs> get, get on, man up and yeah, get on exactly. with it. Um, and then obviously me and my brother's generation, you know, we still struggle a little bit, but it's slightly better. I've got two boys as well now. And um, I, again, I worry about them. I'm hoping that it's more open for them. But now they've got to deal with social media and all of the other sort of, you know, challenges that society is going to throw at them but yeah mental health is definitely generational and I find the younger they are the more they adapt to it yeah that's so interesting isn't it I think it's if we can like teach in schools how to look after mental health Mm. and you think what they'd be like when they're a grandparent it'll Mm. be so different to what we've seen grandparents or parents have before yeah and I think that's a key point like education I was not educated on how to deal with my dad and my dad was not educated on how he was feeling so he just judges himself you know and and we don't know how to support him because we're not educated on it whereas now I've almost had to educate myself on it um I now see it in a completely different light but back then you don't and I think a lot of people that also um not are against mental health but like you say are very much you know what's therapy what's coaching that kind of stigma against it I believe a lot of them are people that have never experienced it like, mm. I was the same. Suicide was selfish when I was growing up. I truly believe that. Mental illness would never affect me or my family. It was just something that only a certain amount of people experience. And suicide would never affect me. And then when it does, then you open your eyes to it a little bit more. Yeah, I so, I so believe that. I, I've experienced that myself completely. And I think it's really interesting what you say earlier. Like, you know, your dad was like, oh, the loony bin. And that is the, like, stigma yeah, around is. it, isn't it? That you have to be mental to have mental mm-hmm. health problems, which mm-hmm. is just so, so far from the truth. It's yeah. like anxiety and stress and depression and all these things, without even going into the extremities of schizophrenia mm-hmm. and everything, is so common. And I think getting people to understand that it's not, 
embarrassing to have it or talk about it because so many people do even the most successful people in the world are struggling mm. with stress and anxiety for example yeah and it's, it's a question that i ask in my talks is do you have mental health and you see the confusion on people's head like minds and like, do, do i have it <laughs> and it's 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 it, of course everyone has it it's the same as physical health we all have mental health but it's, it's the point that you've just made people who struggle to differentiate mental illness and mental health um and there's this whole thing that I talk about a lot and a lot of people do as well when it comes to mental health is we wait until we're at rock bottom until we get help. It's like we don't we don't deal with it proactively. It's like the same with my dad. My dad only seeked help when he was literally at, you know, crisis point. Whereas if my dad maybe seeked help earlier, and it was the same with me. I didn't I did exactly the same. I waited until I was at crisis point until I went and got help. Um so I think we need to treat it very differently, more proactive approach to it than just reactive and waiting until we're at the rock bottom. Yeah, I so believe it. I'm such a big um, advocate for prevent rather than cure where you can. Obviously, mm. like, you know, cure is amazing when you really need it. But if we can try and prevent, like, mental health issues as much as possible by just mm. teaching people little exercises for the mind, it could have yeah. such an effect. I agree. But so vulnerability with men and mental health is obviously a big thing like you said um do you think that's the main reason why men find it difficult perhaps more than women to talk about the fact that they could be suffering for a long time i believe so i believe as well you have to look at that there's there's some horror horrible statistics around obviously male suicide you know men are three times more likely to die by suicide than women you know biggest killer of men under 50 these are statistics that i didn't even know until no, four years ago i found that out the other know? day and i was like that's bigger than cancer the killers themselves or exactly. diabetes a man under 50 that's shocking and the way i frame it now is if you are a man under 50 the biggest threat to your life is yourself it's your mind it's mental health um it was biggest killer of young people as well, which isn't something to neglect. And also um, suicide rates amongst young women are, are increasing more than they ever have as well. So it's, it's a huge issue. But the, the, the statistics in construction, for example, are, are shockingly high. And I think if you're a man in construction, it's something like eight times more likely to die by suicide. Something along those lines. And wow. I look into that and I think, is that purely because it's a male-dominant environment? You know, is it purely because... I don't know, you know, it's you're there with all other guys and are you going to come forward and tell them that you're struggling? Um, so I think there's a huge amount of problems for men to talk to other men, but there's always other people that you can talk to as well. And what I found as well is I was exactly the same. I didn't talk to any of my friends. Like, why would I tell my friends? There was times where I might get drunk and I might get emotional and then the next day I'm like shutting them down. Like, it never no, happened. No, 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 it never happened. It was a drink. <laughs> and you blame it on the alcohol. And um, and I don't, looking back on that, there was nothing that my friend did wrong. It was just me. I just didn't want to talk to them at that point. But what's important now is with the work that I do and the stuff I do on social media, you know, a lot of my friends now speak to me and, you know, at that time they were going through something. But I never knew that because I just never asked them. And I think it's important that we realise whether you're a man or a woman, you know, we all have mental health, we all have emotions, we all have things that we're going through. So, you know, we're all human at the end of the day, so we, we should be able to talk about it. What would you say then is um, your best piece of advice to a friend of someone who they think might be suffering, but they don't know how to approach them and they usually get shut down if they ask them once, so that's the natural thing. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay, moving on to the next topic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a question I get asked a lot and it's a hard question um, because especially if it's your friend, you, you almost want to solve their problems for them. Mm. 
like you know it's your friend or a loved one you love them you want to solve it and I look back on how I dealt with my dad's depression and it was purely solutions based it was like you know come on dad let's go for a run come on dad why you you got nothing to be worried about you got this you got that you got this um and now what I've kind of realized is is just being there showing compassion showing love is is far better than trying to solve their problems but I also think that we judge ourselves a lot as well. You know, th- there's only so much we can do. And if we're trying to help a friend, it's like we're doing our best. We're letting them know that we're there if we d- if they do ever want to talk. But it's very much down to that individual to want to, to speak about how they're feeling. Um, and also you said about how are you. There's this, this one thing that, you know, a lot of people say, which is ask twice. So like if I say to someone, how are you? They're going to say, I'm fine. Yeah. which is typically the answer. Can I swear on this? Yeah, I swear away. People have Which Anne told me when, when I said I'm fine, Anne said that stands for fucked, insecure, neurotic and emotional. I love that. Yeah. That's such a good, it's so And true. I was like, okay. <laughs> that threw me a little bit. Um, and then, and then um, asking twice is to, to ask them again. So if I was to say, how are you? You might say, yeah, I'm fine. And then I would say, it's just that we've noticed that last couple of times we've been going out, you, you, you haven't come out. I'm just making sure that everything's okay. Like that then gives the person another opportunity to share. It shows compassion. It shows that you've noticed. It shows that you care. And now they might share. If they don't, then at least you've, you've tried. And that's, that's the most that you can do. Yeah, I like that. And it's so true. You can't force someone, but don't be you know, naive to think that just saying it once and then walking away is going to exactly. be the solution. And I think the reason why we do that is we protect ourselves. I did the same thing with my dad. So I didn't want my dad to tell me how he was truly feeling because how do I how do I deal with that? You know, if if he says to me, actually, I'm feeling very suicidal, how do I deal with that in that moment? So it was very much, come on, dad, you're fine, you know, <laughs> because because I didn't want him to tell me how he was truly feeling, and I think that's why, as we say, we we don't we don't check in on them or we just say how are you and then we walk away from it because we're kind of protecting ourselves a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's like the human way of, like you say, protecting ourselves, not mm. quite... When you don't understand something fully because you haven't experienced it yet, it's that fear around it, isn't it? Mm. So when you were going through your time of grief and loss for your dad, was there ever a point where you thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to come back from this? Yeah, loads. There's, there's moments, it was... I don't know how long after my dad, but just... Silly things like you know, not being able to get out of bed, um, kind of like gazing out the window and just sort of like, why, you know, why is this happening? And um, saying to myself, I'm never going to get married, I'm never going to have kids, like I need my dad, I need my dad. And there was times as well where just, I was in a really like sort of dark place. Now looking back on it, I don't, I don't, I don't, I do share openly about it now, is there was times where, you know, I'd be driving my car and I've sped up and I thought, you know, what would happen if I just closed my eyes and just crash into the wall? Um, and I look back on that and I actually don't realise, I don't think I was suicidal. I think I was more trying to get into the headspace my dad was in to understand it. Mm. I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand how the dad that I knew for 18 years could do what he did. Like, I just couldn't under- I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And um, yeah, I did find myself in quite sort of dark places. But I, I don't know whether a lot of that was just me trying to figure it all out still. Um, but yeah, and but even even when I did start to get help and did see Anne and did start to get better, then you come crashing down again. <laughs> and it's like, this is the thing with grief. Even it was my dad's 10 year anniversary um, in March. 
and I'm very vocal about it. I talk about it, and it was probably the worst year I've had for for ages. Like I was sitting there on the on the night before my dad's anniversary. It was always the worst because that was the last time I saw him. I saw him at ten thirty at night. He was at my nan and granddad's house. He'd just come out of the mental health unit again. He was in there for a couple of days. It was the worst I've ever seen him. And um, one part of me was like, get him in the car, take him back to the hospital. Another part of me was like, you're tired, you've tried, we've already done this a couple of days ago, you've got work in the morning, check in on him tomorrow. Um, and obviously, you know, he took his life that next day, so I never saw him again. So I've always find the day before my dad's anniversary is the hardest. But yeah, so, so 10 years, I was like, this will be fine, I'll cruise for it, it'll be cool. And then just <laughs> the, 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 the anniversary, the day before, I'm like sitting on the sofa, like, what is going on? I can't, I cannot control this, it's... Um, scary so that's interesting you say the word control because that is literally it isn't it grief is uncontrollable yeah. and I think what's really funny is that if you you are going through a time of grief like I've said to you I've lost my sister and my dad and some people will just who haven't been through it not out of their own fault just but expect after a certain amount of time where you just snap back mm. and that's it they, you, know, you dust it away it's been a sad time but on you get with your life and you don't know when that wave is going to hit you and it can mm. hit you from the most random trigger like a book and falling off the shelf in a supermarket it was just the stupidest yeah, yeah. stuff and um i think it's really interesting like you say now 10 years later you can still just suddenly get hit by it and i think people need to be sort of aware of that and more understanding to it that doesn't mean that person is weak or mental because they're still grieving for no, their loved one 10 years later and you, you cannot put a time on it and even i've had something recently where my granddad you know he's got carers now and he's um you know, he's not as independent as he was. My granddad was running when he was like 92, I think. He was, he's, he's an amazing man. But wow. um, <laughs> he calls me Neil, which is my dad's name. And, you know, sometimes, like, and he'll say, like, your mum, and he's talking about my nan. And um, sometimes he believes I'm my dad. And I've got two boys. My dad had two boys. And he's like, how are the boys? And I'm like, he's talking about me and my brother. He's not talking about my two. And the biggest fear that I have, and I probably always will have, is I'll end up like my dad. Um, I was very, I'm very alike my dad. Um, it was scary to see how quick he went, and I'm like, is that how I'm going to end up? Um, so like that really hurt. Like I had to kind of navigate my way through that over the last couple of months. And also, it's a funny thing, but when my dad, my dad died at 45, and I've got this thing in my mind of when I become his age on the day he died. It's, it's, I don't know, it's just weird to, to, but it's just on my mind of how am I going to feel when I'm 45 on the 4th of March, 2009. So yes. yeah, as you say, grief, you cannot put a time on grief. It's, it's always with you. If you had to go back and tell your younger self at that time of grief one thing, what would it be? Mm. So cliche, but I just think talk about it. Yeah. It was so just deal with it on your own. Like... Me and my mum are close, but I didn't want to tell her because then I'd burden her because she's going through it. You know, same with my brother. My brother was dealing with it. I wrote about it in my book. Um, something along the lines of we all dealt with it in our own way. You know, we're all going through exactly the same thing, but we're all dealing with it in a completely different way. Um, so I didn't tell my brother. I didn't want to tell my friends. Um, so you almost just deal with it on your own. I think that's such an interesting point because I think people do assume that when you go through a family death and you have multiple family members, that although, yeah, you are all there for each other, there is a lot of isolation in mm. that own experience. And I've, I've had my mum say to me two days later, yeah, I had a really bad day on Sunday. I'm like, why the fuck didn't you call me? And it is mm. that thing where you just think, 
you don't want to burden that other family member because you know what they're going through is as bad as you or whatever that they're already feeling it and you but it's just it's that human yeah. nature thing isn't it yeah it's, it's 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 hard and like you say that's why I, I believe going to therapy or coaching or seeing someone outside of maybe the family circle is important as well and that doesn't mean that you know you don't love your family and you can't talk to your family but you know as you say they're experiencing it as well um so I definitely would have spoke about it earlier but also kind of looking at that you know I just don't think I was ready back then Mm. you might be able to relate like I did go counseling on the NHS but you know I didn't open up and then my friends did ask me but I didn't open up so I think a lot of it is to do with time as well yeah I agree with that what do you think is the worst thing that someone can say to someone at a time of grief just that's not really unhelpful just because some people <laughs> some people struggle people get very awkward yeah. and what do you think was the worst thing someone said to you without realizing or could be the worst thing to say mm, that's a really good question i think the worst thing is not saying anything at all there's a huge amount of avoidance around it absolutely oh God, paul lost his dad last week let's like let's not kind of ask him how he is you know, that's the elephant in the room. Yeah, like, this is just exactly. weird. <laughs> and this is the problem that I always say with grief, especially as a British, you know, British, we're, we're very silent around it. It's kind of very morbid and like, let's not talk about it. Whereas I look at like other cultures and they like kind of celebrate it and it's completely, you know, dealt with in a different way. And then you put suicide into the mix as well. Like, I used to lie about my dad's death because, you know, I didn't want them to judge him. I didn't then want to, them to judge me but also just the silence around suicide like if I was mm. to say my dad took his own life you know god what would that person say how would they feel so um I think the worst thing is to not say anything at all and then I think the next worst thing would just be what did someone I don't know just like just get over it or something on those yeah, lines, just, you know like come on just get over it it's done now <laughs> and it's, it's true though like you can't change it but just get over it it's you know it's just, just get over it or um you know the classic one of the oh they're in a better place now and you're yeah. like oh yeah, yeah they how do you they know? are but how do you know slash i want them here so yeah it's such yeah a funny and i mean it's, it's like one of those things that like i did and really helped me learn to i was i was very victim because i wanted to control it i wanted my dad to be back and she made me realize that that's just never going to happen so for me to move forward i need to reframe it and you know it took a long time but i'm very grateful that i had an amazing dad for 18 years rather than the fact that you know my dad was never going to be here for for anything after that um so it is true you cannot control it but it's one of those things that it takes time to kind of navigate through it yeah so telling them a week after isn't, <laughs> yeah, isn't the correct thing no yeah did you have a sense of did you develop sort of a sense of spirituality after this were you ever spiritual before what was your sort of journey with that yeah, so, you know, I always kind of look back and laugh because I went to CM when I was 21. And um, the reason why it originally happened was because... So Amy, who my, is now my wife, we weren't married at the time, she had um, a friend who went and saw Anne and she gives massage. So it's I purely went to see Anne for my back because I had a back problem because I was always at my desk working. Um I tried like acupuncture, chiropractor, etc. But the one thing that sticks with me is Amy said, Anne is like a witch. She knows more about you than you know about yourself. And for some reason, I was like, oh, I need to go see this lady. So I went to see Anne, walked in there, got a bad problem. You know, that was purely it for the first session. She gave me a massage, said, go see a chiropractor as well. 
second session kind of went back there you know choose your oils it's like this really kind of like <laughs> dark and dingy place in a bungalow and you know Anne was I'd say she was late 60s at the time um and then yeah the second session was when she said why are you here I was like I'm here for my back she says no no why are you why are you really here and like that just cut me and I just said my dad killed himself I don't know how to deal with it and cried and cried and cried and cried um and Anne was Anne's very spiritual and I remember couple of sessions in she gave me Eckhart Tolle a new earth love him so I'm 21 I mean I'm in Iron Apple with all my mates and um I'm reading this book a new earth. <laughs> <laughs> and looking back here you know I'm going out every night getting drunk but at the same time reading this book and the first time I read it it didn't really make sense to me I was just um does it, I can't even understand half yeah, of these words <laughs> um but then I'd go back and Anne would be like right write this down or do this or um she started to do sort of um spiritual path cards and and then she started to give me more and more books like Wayne Dyer and everyone like that and then I think I sort of read The Secret and that kind of like made it a little bit more understandable at that time um and yeah just kind of went down that path and Anne said something about a year ago, which kind of sat with me a little bit. She said, the reason why you was drawn on that path is because you wanted to understand where your dad went. You wanted to feel connected to your dad. You wanted to understand it a little bit more. And that, that did make a bit of sense to me. But also I believe I'm, I've always been quite um, a deep thinker. Mm. I've never been religious. Like we never went to church or anything like that. So when you hear spirituality, it's like, oh, you go to church? It's like, no. That's a common misconception, isn't it? And yeah. it's, uh, spirituality is a personal thing. So what does it mean to you personally, spirituality? Uh, I, liked your, I liked your definition earlier. Where I, I believe it's just we are, we're all connected. We're all connected in some way. And we all have a purpose or a path. Like a 29-year-old from Essex shouldn't be saying this kind of stuff. Especially the way I was brought up. But... I, I honestly believe that. So like I believe that we have this this path, and um, if we can trust it, that you know, you're being guided along the way. And and even even I look at my dad's suicide, and now the work that I do, I'm like, is this all part of it? Mm. And and a lot of people don't understand that. But in my eyes, it's like, is this is this part of it? And even my brother, my brother had a, a really serious accident about two and a half years ago, um, a brain injury, and that was. We did, I didn't touch on it earlier, but that was the catalyst of me actually doing more around mental health because I was still in the fashion industry. I was still very driven by money. My brother had this you know, accident at work, freak accident at work that left him brain damaged in a coma. Uh, he spent nearly a year in hospital sort of recovering. He's still recovering today. He's doing really well. Um, but that for me was a massive wake-up call and I learned so much from that. And even Anne, Anne said it again and she understands it. She's like, that's all part of his life lessons that's all part of my life lessons it's all part of my mum's life lessons but a lot of people can't really see that but that's the way I see spirituality is we all have a, a path and yeah have to nice try way. and follow it in a in some way <laughs> yeah, exactly. but I always come off it you know I'm always veer like, off. Get back on, veer yeah off. it's like I veer off it and I'm like right I'm going to read this book instead which is more practical and then I'll veer back to the spirituality stuff again yeah I think it's, it's nice to have a balance isn't it and yeah I think it's really interesting when people are able and amazing, I you know, I know a lot of people have managed to do something in the way that you have of turning their pain into their purpose and mm. making it a greater experience for other people. And I think that's such a powerful thing because it comes from such a place of authenticity and truly mm. wanting to change something from a position you've been in. Yeah, it's also quite selfish. Like I, I, I feel, <laughs> I feel very connected to my dad when I'm when I talk and share his story and um, 
yeah, I feel very connected. And, and even when people sort of say, oh, you know, I just, I just wish, my aim's always been like just to help someone like my dad in that situation, if they could hear it from my perspective, if, if they could then understand or seek help or, or someone could help their loved one just by me sharing, like that's always been the purpose. Um, and as it's grown, as it's grown, as it's grown, it's got bigger than that. But yeah, I do feel very close to my dad when, when I talk. Yeah, that's so nice. It's so, so nice to feel that. What would you say then is one thing that you would get everyone to do to work on, firstly, their mind every day, if mm. you could get one, everyone to do one thing, and then their soul? Oh, good question. Mind, I think, is very much... I don't do it as much now than I used to, but um, affirmations. I just believe we're so conditioned to to think a certain way, um, from like parenting or from you know school or, or whatever it is, and we do have the ability to kind of con- to change that. It's not like an overnight shift. Um, so affirmations, like for example, I hated public speaking. I was terrible. I used to call. I used to do a sickie at school if I had to do some form of presenting. Um, and <laughs> that's hilarious. And like the first time I did it, like I was just nervous. And but but then you kind of train your mind to to do it, and you kind of deal with the nerves and get you know become more confident. So I think affirmations and trying to change your conditioning is important for your mind. Yeah. For your soul, I believe it's having some meaning having some sort of purpose in your life so even though this is work it doesn't feel like work it just feels like I'm doing something that I love to do and I I believe a lot of men in particular even my dad you know they conform to normality and then they don't have that much meaning in their life when they're sort of like middle-aged um do you think that's where the middle-aged crisis comes from I believe so yeah yeah well I'm 40 however much now and it's I don't feel like I've got any meaning in my life. I don't feel like I've got any purpose in my life. And it's the same with women. Like, my mum's purpose was me and my brother. And mm. she struggled when, you know, me and my brother are older. <laughs> and we don't need her as much as, you know, we used to. And now her purpose is gone. And she has to try and find a new purpose. So I think for the soul, it's finding something, you know, you have meaning in. Um, and, and doing that as much as you can as well. Yeah, I love that. So you talked about Eckhart Tolle before. Is he, apart from him, because I think he's fantastic, what's like one of the most sort of inspirational, changing books that you've read? Wayne Dyer. I like Wayne Dyer. I'll say best. Neil Donald Walsh. Have you read any of his books? No. So Neil Donald Walsh is one of the first books Hans gave me as well. It's called Conversations with God. So it's probably the most like on paper religious book that if you picked it up, you'd find and um, I remember coming home, my mum, my, and really helped my mum as well. My mum, you know, she struggled with alcoholism as well. Um, she's, been, she's been sober for seven years now, eight years. It was amazing. And Anne was the person who helped her too. Um, but I remember coming home and I was reading this Conversations with God and my mum was like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> and then the funny thing was, there's, I think there's four or three books at the time. And then when my mum went to start seeing Anne, she got through all the books quicker than I did. And I was like, see, I told you. <laughs> um, that was a good book. Um, what else helped? Uh, there's lots. But yeah, I definitely think New Earth helped me a lot. Power Now. Uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I don't know who that yeah, was. Yeah, that's a great book. Um, Susan Jeffries, I think. Yeah. Susan Jefferson. Yeah. yeah, but the, the the funny thing with books as well is um like feel the fear and do it anyway was my dad's book, and I always kind of say this sometimes that that's a, that book helped me a lot and I just got it off my dad's bookshelf, um, 
So I believe with books, etc., it's about action in them rather than just reading them and next book, next book. Yeah, that's it's such kind a of good like point. reading them. Like New Earth, I think I read that three times before I actually understood yes. <laughs> the concept of it. Um, and I think timing. So yeah, the way I read books now is more like read, take action, or read, come back to it in a couple of years' time. What's your best method of taking action after a book? Like implementing it that implementing something that day? Is that or? Yeah, and I just I just believe just doing something very small. Like what helped me with my depression was was small wins and kind of congratulating yourself from them. Because when I was kind of really struggling to even get out of the bedroom, I was always like, right, you've got to go for a 5K run or you've got to go to the gym for an hour because I'm kind of comparing the depressed Paul to like the old Paul that could go to the gym or run. Um and when you're in that mindset, you don't even want to get out of bed, let alone mm. go for a five k run. So the thing that helped me was I don't know where I don't know whether I read it somewhere, but like just do I just did like ten press ups in the morning, and so then, I just do a star jump, and then exactly, and then like fifteen the next day, twenty the next day, thirty the next day. But it sounds so it sounds so corny, but every time you do it, it's like well done, well done, like you know, and you kind of congratulate yourself for it. And those small wins started to obviously make me feel a little bit better, which allowed me to then start going for walks and runs and gym and. Um, slowly kind of work your way out of it um, I believe especially with mental health we all want like that quick fix mm. that overnight fix and there isn't one that exists whoever invents it will make a huge amount of money <laughs> um, so it's it's more yeah if I read a book now it's kind of like what small action can I take on this yeah I like that um, it's yeah. those little steps that build up isn't it and I think mm. like you say people just want that quick fix or you wouldn't expect to like have the dream body in a day, so why do you yeah. expect to have the dream it's mind? True, yeah. It's like, I don't know, it's a funny one. I, again, I'd like that. <laughs> I just wake up one day and have the dream body. Boom, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to finish, if you had to leave one legacy behind, you know, to help this sort of thing, what is it that you want to leave behind? Mm. Legacy is a good word. Um, my purpose originally was to help people like my dad. Um then I found out very quickly that that then moulded into like family members and wives and sisters and it became more generalised. Um, but legacy for me now is is more about the next generation as well. So again, we sort of said conditioning, education, I believe. So my biggest fear is, is that I don't believe we're in a place where when my kids are older, it's going to be good for their mental health. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, everything, isn't it? You know, just like the system, how it's all currently set up, everything. So so that's the kind of legacy that I want to leave, is that we can maybe create more of an open environment. People can talk more openly about mental health. People can deal with their mental health a lot better. Um, whether that's like my grandkids or my great-grandkids, I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of legacy I'm after. It's a great one. And also, what is final question one more what is the sort of sentence or intention that you try to live into daily that inspires you or makes you driven mm, so what do I personally live to it's a great question one that I've probably not figured out yet so it's always <laughs> changing yeah that um, is the thing but one one thing that I'm very focused on is again just gratitude just always kind of bringing it back. If 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 things are tough, if like any you know stress at work or you know family stuff or whatever it is, um, I always try and now frame it to gratitude. Like what have I got to be grateful for? And there's so much that 
I and everyone has to be grateful for. And again, my brother's accident helped me massively with that because, you know, my brother lost a lot of his physical movement. Um, mentally, he's fine. He's still got the same bad sense of humour and we still watch Office and laugh. Um, but physically, like, he lost a lot of his movement and he's, you know, physio every day and trying to get back to, to where he can possibly be. Um, and sometimes I just remind myself of that. Like, mm. I'm worried about this, but, you know, I can walk. I can feed myself I can you know freely move around if I want to and um not sort of comparing myself to him but just reminding myself of how grateful I am and also reminding you know and he does the same like he's very grateful that he's alive he's very grateful that he's got the mental capacity that you know he's still got the same you know mindset that he had before so I think even though whatever situation we're in we can always be grateful for something yeah I love that thank you so much it was great having you thank you for having me